If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, sorting through the myths and misinformation around COVID-19, a.k.a. coronavirus, we hear from Dr. Louis Franciscetti of the School of Public Health at the University of Alberta. Also, the economic challenges Alberta now faces with oil prices plunging along with the stock market. We hear from Bev Dalby, Director of Research with the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary. So then Charlebois joins us from Dalhousie University. We'll talk about the psychology of panic buying and why we've seen a run on toilet paper as of late. Also on today's episode, some of the follow from last week's report on supervised consumption sites. We hear from Peter Oliver, president of the Beltline Neighborhoods Association. And a look at cell phone bills. The Liberal government has given the big three two years to reduce their cell phone rates. But is this the ideal way of getting to lower cell phone bills? All right, well... Maybe we ought to just take one big uh, collective deep breath here. But uh, buckle down, folks. It's going to be a bumpy week. Uh, and certainly there are some really serious economic headwinds that Alberta is running headlong into here. And that is going to be a big focus uh, of a program today. Now, Alberta Premier Jason Kenney is going to be speaking at 2 o'clock this afternoon. And so we'll listen in on what he has to say. I believe opposition leader Rachel Notley is going to be speaking within the next uh, 10 or 15 minutes or so. Uh, and, and look, there's there's a lot of conversation about what we need to do here in Alberta at the moment. So we have got a, a severe budget problem as a result of this economic slowdown and the crashing oil prices. The budget for this year had originally forecast West Texas Intermediate to be at around $58 a barrel. It's not. It's nowhere close to that. So we got a big budget problem. How do we respond? I, I mean, with that, though, coupled with that, is the fact that if we are seeing a crash in oil prices, what does that mean for the industry? What does that mean in terms of investment? What does it mean in terms of jobs? So we've got those economic challenges as well. And I mean, it's, it's already been a rough few months for Alberta, a rough few years for Alberta. Uh, so how do we ensure that the economy, as much as we can, can stay on track? So we're going to cover that on the program today. The finance minister, federal finance minister, Bill Morneau, is set to address all of this coming up at around 2.45 today. Uh, so certainly a lot of focus on the economic fallout from this whole situation. And I mean, it is going to be considerable. So we'll get to that. Obviously, there is the public health side of the conversation. I mean, let's let's remember here and let's keep things in perspective, right? The, the risk to Albertans from this COVID-19 coronavirus is still low. We have seen cases here. We've got some new cases that are going to be confirmed uh, coming up just after 1 o'clock. Uh, but the risk is still low. So there's, there's a balance that needs to be struck here in, in covering this public health situation and making sure that people are, are getting good and accurate information, but also keeping things in perspective. It's not the sort of thing that should keep you awake at night. It's not the sort of thing that you should worry about dying from. But obviously, steps are being taken to try to contain this virus. We do have here a new virus, one that people do not have immunity to. We don't yet have a vaccine for. And certainly, we're, we're working on the latter side of things. Uh, so steps are being taken to try to contain this. And if this doesn't have to become a permanent seasonal virus, then that's a positive. So it's easy enough to look around and say, well, that seems like an overreaction. That seems prudent, etc. And, and a lot of that is subjective. And I think public health officials are, are trying their best to ensure that they are not contributing to any sort of panic, but making sure people have good information. Unfortunately, there's no shortage of panic out there, as evidenced by the massive run on, on toilet paper that we've been seeing. I, I still don't understand that. And, and look, I, I get that people aren't buying toilet paper necessarily because uh, they're somehow freaked out that they're not going to have any. It's just you, you, you see that. And it's a bit of a herd mentality. And if, um, you know, if things are going to run out, people don't want to be 
left with nothing, right? So, so that's, that's part of what's going on here today. But I wanted to, to start the program today with some of the conversation about just keeping a level head, keeping calm, and keeping things in perspective. And that's what our next, next guest has been urging people to do. Take a deep breath and stay calm. Dr. Louis Franciscutti is professor of the School of Public Health at the University of Alberta. Dr. Franciscutti, thanks for joining us here today. Welcome to the program. My pleasure. I mean, we, we've gone through situations of the past, uh, H1N1, SARS, where we, where we have a new virus, we have an outbreak, and, and so there's concern, there's confusion. How comparable is this situation to those? Well, I think, unfortunately, what's happened this time is the media um, latched onto the story and uh, just won't let it go. So what ends up happening is the markets get a little panicky, you know, industry gets panicky, and the average citizen that's just sitting out there trying to get through day by day, um, you know, unfortunately panics. And uh, when you have, you know, the federal minister of health telling you to go up and stockpile on stuff, people uh, exaggerate the response. So I think what we're seeing is typical, but people need to basically just sit back and relax and, you know, take it easy. It's uh, it's not as bad as they're making it out to be. Yeah. Well, I mean, in, in a way then, as you say, I mean, the media is kind of the lens through, you know, we're, which, um, you know, we're, we're sharing what's happening, what, what elected officials are saying, what other countries are doing. Um, so in, in that sense, then, I mean, if the ministers weren't saying those things or countries weren't responding, there, there wouldn't be those stories to share. So how much of it then is, is attributable to decisions that are being made about how to respond to this? Well, here's the thing. Public health, which keeps the majority of us very healthy, is the poor, cut, poor cousin in medicine. So it's a lot sexier and it's a lot easier in the public side to fund, you know, transplants and helicopters and ICUs and all these, you know, pretty impressive, sexy toys. But public health gets very little funding. And so what ends up happening is when public health has to respond to a crisis like this, uh, they just don't have the capacity to do it. And so what ends up happening is we get these overreacting responses by both the media and then healthcare organizations and everybody that's been basically caught with their pants down, right? And so now they're trying to play catch up. But for the average person out there, you know, the risk is greater getting killed driving to Costco to get your toilet paper than it is to actually contact the virus and die from the virus. And if anyone does come down with flu-like symptoms, for heaven's sakes, don't go to emergency. That's the worst place to go to. And the reason is there's sick people in emergency. And so why bring, if you are, you know, infected with this virus or any virus, you know, uh, bringing it to an emergency department and putting people at risk? This is where you need to have strong primary care networks. And that's why it's important that the government and the AMA that are back at the table actually, you know, come to some sort of consensus and let's strengthen primary care so every Albertan has a family physician to go to and the family physician can direct them as to where they need to go. So it's it's a combination of a whole bunch of things coming together at the wrong time in Alberta. But uh, your average citizen should just go about doing their daily routine activities and not losing any sleep over this. I'm not. Right, and and I think that's important to point out. And and look, as as our chief uh, medical officer of health has has reiterated that that the risk to Albertans is still low, right? And and that's important for people to, and on top of everything else, we're we're trying to digest around this story to to ensure that we hear that. Yeah, no, I think she's doing a stellar job trying to, you know. Um, make people understand that uh, people are going to get sick. People have, you know, come down with it. And there's probably some people that are circulating around us right now that, uh, you know, may have the virus. But this virus is just a virus, right? At the end of the day, you know, we've seen viruses come and go and they do their thing and then they usually peter out and then they come back in a couple of years and everybody gets all excited again. So this is not the first uh, rodeo we've all been to. We've seen this, right? So take care of the people that are at greatest risk. In other words, um, elders. So, you know, check on your parents or check on your neighbors. Make sure they're okay. Uh, Make sure everyone has a family physician that they can go to. Uh, If you're absolutely not sure what to do, in Alberta, we're fortunate. Call 811. 811 will provide you the next steps as to where you should go if you do need to be tested. 
But if you're one of those worried well that thinks they've got coronavirus, for heaven's sakes, don't go to emergency and plug us up asking to be tested, right? That's the wrong thing to do. Well, as you say, I mean, you know, there, there are pressures uh, on our emergency rooms at the best of times. And, you know, there's certainly the, the concern that if we start to see cases spike here in Alberta, that, that our system could maybe even be overwhelmed. Well, we're running at zero capacity right now. And so the last thing we need to do is uh, be taking care of people that think they might have something that the likelihood they have is uh, close to zero. So, you know, the, the, the MOH has said it, and I'll repeat it. Wash your hands. Yeah. Get good rest. Eat properly. If you're smoking, stop smoking. Make sure you've got, um, you know, your pre-existing condition under control, whether it's uh, COPD or bronchitis or, you know, diabetes or renal problems. You know, make sure you're in the best health you possibly can be. And if you want, you know, avoid contact with uh, large crowds. Maybe no more handshaking for a while. But it's really don't lose sleep over it and stop watching TV. <laughs> uh, at, at this point, you know, we're, we're, we're sort of caught between that and, and uh, conveying that kind of a message. But we are still, I, I think at this point, trying to contain this, right, and, and not letting it, letting it set in. So how do we balance all of that where there's kind of a public health interest in, in trying to contain this and, and preventing the spread of this, but also trying to convey that message of, look, you know, we need to keep this in perspective. Well, you know, the uh, the national, uh, you know, chief medical officer today made an announcement that they're recommending not taking uh, cruise ship tours, right? So, I mean, that's that's a reasonable recommendation. So there's something concrete if people were planning on traveling. Yeah. Uh, just reassess your travel status. Uh, how much is it worth for you to worry about something and act as opposed to not acting? So if you've got a trip coming up, uh, to some place and you're not sure whether you should go or not or not if you absolutely don't have to go then don't go right and then that takes that whole worry out of that equation nothing worse than planning a trip and then you know fretting about it day and night and uh you know not getting further ahead so make decisions when you're not in a crisis mode ask yourself if, you, if you're going to travel to the states and uh, they impose a quarantine on you have you got sufficient funds to, you know, stay in the States for an extra 14 days? And if the answer is no, then obviously don't travel to the States. And can you afford health care in the States if you come down with this and you have to end up in an ICU? Yeah. And if the answer is no, then don't travel. Otherwise, just do what you normally do and uh, don't get too excited by this. Yeah. It'll come and it'll go, just like every other virus has. Yeah. Uh, some important points. Dr. Francis Cuddy, we'll leave it there. Thanks for making some time for us uh, here today. Appreciate your insight on this. All the best. Bye-bye. All right, there you go. Uh, that is uh, Dr. Lewis Francis Cuddy, uh, professor of the School of Public Health, University of Alberta. Uh, just as he talks about, you know, traveling and quarantine, the Prime Minister of Israel has announced today that everyone who enters Israel from abroad will have to be in self-quarantine for 14 days. So if you're traveling to Israel... For a week, you'll need to, I guess, make that three weeks, including the two weeks you'll spend in self-quarantine when you arrive. So those are the kinds of things to keep in mind when making decisions about traveling. And, and that's that's all happening, right? So that, that's uh, part of making those kinds of decisions. We heard the premier talking about uh, how they're prepared to take whatever steps are necessary to protect jobs and protect the economy. He also announced that, that there is going to be the creation of a panel, uh, an emergency economic response panel to be chaired by Dr. Jack Mintz, who is at the University of Calgary's School of Public Policy, as is our next guest here, Bev Dalby, uh, as economist, uh, director of research at the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary. Bev, appreciate making some time for us here this afternoon. Uh, good afternoon. All right. Well, um, obviously, this, this is a really unique kind of challenge Alberta is facing at the moment. Uh, your, your thoughts on just how serious this is in the short term? Well, in the short term, it does seem to be fairly serious. We've seen the, you know, decline in world oil prices, in, in stock market uh, values, in uh, commodity prices as well, a wide range of commodity prices. Uh, so it, it is very significant. I mean, it is being driven by the downturn in world economic activity from the uh, disruptive effects of the of the virus. Uh, so yes, it is serious. It, it remains to be seen how late, long this uh, 
impact will will uh, be felt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, certainly this year it would appear, though, that that's, you know there, there is going to be maybe a, a bigger hole in the budget than perhaps we had anticipated. But is is that the kind of thing that you know we we can we can deal with? Well, I think. Uh, if it doesn't persist for the entire year or or even a substantial part of it, it is uh, a kind of fluctuation that we can uh, deal with. I think at this time it would be unwise to make a major change in the province's fiscal uh, stance, the, the, the plan for for 2021, 21, 22, I think it's, uh, you know, we've only had this budget for less than two weeks. And although this is uh, serious, I don't think it means that we should make major changes at this time. Mm-hmm. Well, the Premier did seem to, to indicate that protecting jobs, protecting the economy, that's a bigger priority of the moment than balancing the budget. And if it means that uh, we, we don't balance the budget by 2023, that, that, that that's okay. I mean, are, are, these, are these separate priorities? Does one need to take precedence over the other? Well, uh, I think they both go together in, in certainly in, in the long run. We can't have a uh, balance the budget if we don't have a strong underlying economy and growth. On the other hand, uh, if we don't balance the budget, we're going to have uh, an overhang of uh, uncertainty and doubt about the you know the, the long run viability of of our economy. So they really do go together. And in the short run, I do believe it is more important to you know uh, maintain economic activity in the province. So from that perspective, the short in the short term, the uh, maintaining economic activity is more important than trying to uh, reduce the, de- the, the deficit as, as planned. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, in terms of, of the revenue side, I mean, the, it was suggested by the opposition that perhaps those reductions in corporate tax rates should be cancelled. I mean, there have been calls for a, a PST, and maybe there's a case to be made for a tax shift. I'm not sure if there's as strong a case to be made for a- adding to the tax burden. I mean, what, what are your thoughts on, on those two issues? Well, as you probably know, I'm, I'm, uh, my research suggests that reducing the corporate income tax is going to benefit uh, Albertan workers through a uh, faster rate of economic growth than mm-hmm. would otherwise occur, and it will create uh, additional employment uh, in the next three to four four years that, we, that will be significant. I don't think this is a time to, to reverse that policy. Uh, it would just create more uh, uncertainty and turbulence in, in the markets, uh, undercut you know, plans that are underway to maintain or, or increase investment. Uh, I think it's a bit premature from a public um, public opinion perspective to uh, implement a sales tax. I think that's something that uh, Albertans will have to have, will have to have a long, long and fulsome debate about before uh, we take that step. Right, and, and maybe that's that's a larger conversation that, uh, that that will happen or should happen about whether we have the right tax mix, how we could adjust that tax mix, whether a sales tax has a role at some point. But is that is that maybe not a conversation for the here and now? Well, it would be nice to start the conversation now, um, and you know, I've been trying to, to promote that conversation for some time. Yes. But uh, you know, I think. In term, there's only usually there's only certain amount of bandwidth for public policy discussions, and right now I think that's going to be dominated by you know responses to the to the virus and the need to maintain economic activity uh, and the public health concerns. So to try to add to the mix a, a debate about. Uh, implementing a sales tax in the near term is, it seems to me to be would overload our capacity to to have a good discussion and good debate about that. Yeah, no, that's probably true. Um, I mean, are, are there other levers at the government's disposal? I, I suspect there's going to continue to be a big focus on on infrastructure spending, maybe moving forward certain projects. Um, but beyond that, what what can government do in the short term? Well, I I would say that there's very little that they can and probably should do. Again, we don't know how long this is likely to last. Um, ramping up infrastructure spending, um, we, 
there might be some that can be done quite quickly, uh, so-called, you know, uh, um, uh, projects that are, are ready oh, to shovel, go. Shovel-ready. Shovel-ready yeah. projects, yeah. yes, but others, you know, do take time to make uh, design contracts, uh, etc., and uh, that increased spending may not come at it, you know, when the uh, situation is 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 passed. Uh, again, we're dealing with a virus that may um, you know play itself out mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, over time. I guess the more worrying issue for Alberta, as far as the oil markets, is this uh, rift between Saudi Arabia and Russia, and whether that could lead to something like a you know a one or two year. Um, the low level of prices as we saw in the 2014-16 period. Yeah, I think you know the Premier said it was kind of unprecedented that we're seeing at the same time a, a big drop in demand for oil. We're seeing increased production, and Saudi Arabia seems to be very deliberate in what, what they're doing. Uh, so that that's, that's going to be something to watch, obviously. Yeah, so that's really the thing that could be more serious for the longer term, you know, for the full year of, of this budget, uh, this budget year. All right, so we'll leave it there. Uh, Bev Dalby, appreciate you making some time for us here this afternoon. Thanks for this. Thanks for having me on the program. All right, Bev Dalby, uh, Director of Research at the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary. So his thoughts on the Alberta government, you know, taking reasonable steps to respond to this, but, but also remaining calm and, and prudent at the same time. Uh, federal Finance Minister Bill Morneau spoke uh, just a, a short while ago here as well. And, of course, we've got a federal budget coming down soon. Uh, so responding to this situation, and, and he was asked, for example, with the oil price collapse, how much has that changed this budget? Well, again, I think uh, we, we need to be thinking about how we respond to events appropriately, uh, and that will not necessarily be just about the budget. So, uh, so we recognize that there are sectors of our economy who are going, that are going to go through uh, real challenges because of the uh, changes right now. So that is clear in the tourism sector, it's clear in the energy sector, and uh, we'll be looking at how we can make sure that, uh, that we are appropriately dealing with those challenges. Now, certainly we've, we've heard in Alberta, the Premier talked about it, so too to Rachel Notley, the idea of more aid to the provinces in terms of the fiscal stabilization program, changing that formula. Uh, so that there will be more available for provinces to to get through these kinds of situations. Uh, Here's what the uh, federal finance minister said when asked about that. Are are important questions. First and foremost, um, my colleague Patty Hyju has been in daily contact, often hourly contact, with ministers of health across the country. So uh, working together to make sure that our system, our health system remains strong, that all the resources are there as required. In terms of uh, moving forward on on, uh, measures that we can actually uh, use to assure people that we've uh, supported them, that we've supported their organizations if necessary, uh, we're working on on some responses right now. So I think uh, what you'll see from us is a a continued approach where as we have measures that we think are appropriate to roll out, based on the facts, uh, we will do so, and you'll see some things this week. In terms of the budget itself, though, he was asked today whether the budget would be postponed. I think it's important not to think about the budget as an event. We, uh, in the past, we've we've reacted to economic challenges when those economic challenges come up. So we will, uh, as necessary, move forward. When we had challenges with steel and aluminum tariffs, we move forward in dealing with those challenges when they come up. So we are looking at uh, taking some initiatives this week. We uh, will certainly be going through uh, deliberations and what the appropriate budget stance is. But uh, as the economy develops, we will be responding appropriately. Okay, Okay. so that from Federal Finance Minister Bill Morneau today. Uh, Stay tuned, I guess. I want to try to get a better understanding of why, why we're seeing this panic buying, in particular when it applies to toilet paper. Uh, Sylvain Charlebois, professor and senior director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. Sylvain, thanks for making some time for us here today. No problem. So, I mean, what, what prompted this in the first place? Do we know? Well, we all know that toilet paper is the perfect antidote to coronavirus, don't you think? <laughs> I'm still trying to figure that out. Beyond silliness, uh, we all have uh, this inner panic buying button. Uh, And as soon as we see things that are out in the ordinary, empty shelves, lineups, 
mask on people's faces. That all of a sudden, uh, you feel that you're you're running out of something, or you may not have access to an essential resource. And and that's how people tend to uh, go out of their way and buy food or buy products that they may not need really, but they think they need. Right, and yeah, I can kind of understand that impulse that if you see everybody else loading up on this stuff, you don't want to be the one left left standing there with nothing, right? Exactly. Now, you guys are uh, are really in the middle of this uh, panic buying uh, cycle uh, because you've had some cases now and uh, people are being reminded through social media, through media, that something's going on. And so that really got, gets people to go out and, and buy certain products. It's, it's actually quite typical. You're seeing it in the U.S. Actually, in the U.S., it's much more acute than, than in Canada. We think that 22% of households are panic buying right now in the U.S., whereas in Canada, it's, it's actually south of 10% right now. What are the implications, though? Are, are we going to get shortages of products for which there might not otherwise have been shortages in the first place? No. No, here's, here's why. So, first of all, this is a virus, and not an earthquake, not not a storm, not a not a natural disaster. It's a virus that's been spreading for weeks and weeks, giving uh, food supply chains plenty of time to adapt, make changes to their production cycle. Uh, in distribution, same thing. Uh, we've seen distributors renegotiate deals with different vendors, finding new vendors to make sure that they, they there is stuff on shelves. Now. If you go into a store and you see an empty shelf, chances are 24 hours, 48 hours later, uh, that shelf will be full again. And some, some retailers have invested heavily on logistics the last uh, few years, and uh, all markets in Canada, well, most of them, but I would say Alberta, uh, uh, all, of the, all of the regions in Alberta are serviced by retailers that have done a, a magnificent job in providing good logistics to to uh, to serve their markets, uh, are, are we likely to see this when it comes to to other products? Do you think, or even when it comes to food, for example? Uh, I, I don't think so. Uh, so, about twenty five percent of households in Canada actually have enough supplies to survive about three to four days. Uh, so there there are a lot of households out there that have nothing, and so of course if they Think about about quarantines and, and stuff like that. Uh, they they may actually decide to go out and, and buy uh, food products. It's absolutely appropriate for anyone to think about uh, emergency planning and have food uh, in in their cupboards uh, and in freezer. I think it's actually appropriate to do that. But you, you don't you shouldn't overdo it either. If you go into a grocery store tonight. Buy a few other extra items you can keep for six months to a year, and and of course uh, you can if you have space in your freezer buy some some frozen foods as well, and most importantly water. I think it's actually quite decent to do, but overdoing it is serves no purpose to yourself and to your community. Indeed. Well, we got to leave it there. Uh, Sylvain, I always appreciate making some time for us here. Thanks for this. My pleasure. All Bye-bye. right, Sylvain Charlebois at uh, Dalhousie University. So last week, we got a report from the Alberta government, a review of supervised consumption sites and and whether this approach is working. Now, this was a report that was specifically meant to focus on uh, kind of the... You know, the, the cons, not so much the pros, but more the cons to look at what the impact has been on communities where these sites are located. And certainly concerns have been raised uh, about crime and social disorder in the vicinity of Calgary's supervised consumption site, which is at the Sheldon Schumier uh, Health Center. It was it was put there for a reason, uh, given the addiction services already available at the Sheldon Schumier site. Uh, but certainly uh, residents, businesses in the area have raised concerns about the impact. Now, how, how do we focus on what precisely is going on there? Because some of these issues around crime and social disorder connected to drug use are not exclusive to this neighborhood. At the same time, there have been steps taken uh, by police, by the, the Sheldon Schumer Center, uh, to, try to try to address some of these issues, and try to mitigate uh, some of these negative impacts. Uh, certainly, this, this report, though, paints a rather negative picture. 
Now, some questions have been raised, though, about just how, how reliable this report is and, and what the Alberta government, uh, this review, based its conclusions on. Now, for example, the report cites Avenue Magazine's rankings of neighborhoods and points out that the livability ranking of the Beltline neighborhood dropped from 2018 to 2019. Now, following the report, Avenue Magazine went back and posted an update on its original article from last year about livability. Because they're saying this change in livability had nothing to do with the supervised consumption side of the Sheldon Schumier Center. The fact that this report is citing Avenue Magazine seems to imply that it is. So, so what's the real story? I, th- I think a lot of questions remain here following the release of this joining us uh, for more thoughts very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon peter oliver president of the beltline community association peter thanks so much for joining us here appreciate it thanks for having me on um so i mean look obviously we've talked before i mean some concerns obviously have been raised about the impact uh, of of the supervised consumption side and what it's meant for the neighborhood but what, what was your thought on this report that came out last week well we thought it was a real missed opportunity here. Um, This is a report we've been waiting for since this government came in about a year ago, and a lot of things have been put on hold. So there was um, another SES site that was ready to open for for Forest Lawn and uh, in the East Village. Um, And and so there's been sort of a lot of uncertainty here, um, sort of what the the path forward was. Um, And what this report wasn't was um, or wasn't used for was um, a, a chance to look at what's working and what's not working and to put forward a strategy or some solutions or even just a process of, of where we go from here. Instead, we've just kind of got the printouts of a whole bunch of online web surveys, which have, you know, um, you could you could have a whole conversation on what the validity of or what the statistical relevance is of those. Um, and so we're no more certain in the future of things today than we were um, before this report came out. Um, and so when we see things in this report, too, that, um, like you said, call up the uh, Avenue Magazine neighborhood rankings, which even Avenue now is clarifying had nothing to do with um, with livability in the neighborhood or yeah. the Sheldon Schumer it really calls into question, I guess, the accuracy of the rest of the information in this report and even the credibility of the people who put this together because this is was glaringly obvious, this this error. Right. And it's it's a really strange one to make. And I mean it, it certainly suggests maybe that that there's an attempt here to to put a negative spin on things. I mean I hope that that's not the case. Uh because if there is though, I mean that that's the kind of thing that I think unfortunately you know, puts the the area in in a bad light that it could negatively impact the the image or the perception of of the Beltline community as a result. Yeah, that's not doing us any favors at all. And um, really, um, I mean, we can all laugh about how silly it is that it's in the report, but this report will likely be used to either justify decisions or to inform a public policy that will affect you know, the safety and security and livability of this neighborhood, um, and not to mention the health care of uh, people who are suffering from addictions. So nothing to take lightly. So we've, we're going to be asking, I mean, it's only just been since the weekend, but we're going to be putting out a statement sometime soon um, to, to formally ask the provincial government to revise this report to remove this error because it's, um, it's not good practice to leave these kinds of mistakes in a report. Right. I think you know, look, we need good information if we're going to make decisions on uh, whether or how to uh, adjust our approach in, in dealing with this drug crisis. So you're right, this this isn't helpful. Now, w- was there any attempt, I mean, did this panel that was doing this report, uh, did they reach out to, to your association? Did, did you have an opportunity to provide any feedback to them? No, they didn't. Um, we kind of just encouraged everyone in the neighborhood to go out and go to the, the meetings. Um, as they saw fit and, and to, um, you know, give their perspective. Um, yes, it is unfortunate that they didn't reach out to sit down with us. It was sort of just an open invite for anyone who wanted to wait in line to stand in front of a microphone and have their five minutes. Yeah. 
So, um, I mean, I think we've been very public and, and vocal on where we stand on this. We've been um, pushing for more supervised consumption sites like you see in Edmonton, where it has the opportunity to spread um, some of the demand around and not put the pressure of a city of a million people uh, in one neighborhood like this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think um, what we've seen um, over the past year with the increased police presence is the crime in this area, or most calls for service, uh, or types of calls for service have dropped below or to uh, comparable levels for the downtown, um, with the exception of drug-related uh, calls for service. And that's more or less what you would probably expect from having only one site and just in one neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that did stand out to me because, um, you know, there, there seemed to be higher levels of community satisfaction in Edmonton, maybe fewer associated issues. And I do uh-huh. wonder if, if, that, if that's because they've taken that approach where you have multiple sites as opposed to, to having just one in Calgary. I know it's, it's something you've pointed out that maybe Calgary should look at the same thing, right? So we're not concentrating some of these issues just in, in one location. Right. The other interesting thing, too, is you'll notice in the Alberta Health Report, uh, Alberta Health Services um, monthly reports, they do show heat maps of where the EMS calls are being made in the city um, in response to overdoses. And so you'll see a big red sort of area around the downtown, um, but you also see that area extend into the east of Calgary and particularly around Forest Lawn. So this report uh, seems to be claiming that uh, a site in Forest Lawn is not necessary at this time. They don't really show their work on how they come to that conclusion, but if you were to look at this EMS data, I think it clearly shows that there is demand and a need for it in this area. Well, and, and it gets back to what you said. So you're going to be calling on the Alberta government to, to maybe go back and revise this report. I, I think, uh-huh. I, I do wonder if, if, you know, at this point now, to, to understand where they intend to go with this, I mean, do we, do we need more clarity from them as well, do you think, on just kind of what, what their intent here is? Yeah, I, I think it would be really uh, helpful for them to um, be a little bit more clear on their process for going forward. I think it makes sense now that they've, They've put this out. They've got some of the chest dumping about law and order and stuff out of the way mm-hmm. um, that we can have um, more people at the table, including uh, healthcare professionals, uh, community members, uh, and members of the government to shape what the, the solution looks like. Um, so if SES is bad, what are we going to do uh, and not end up with a whole bunch of unsupervised consumption on the street? Yeah, exactly. Um, like what we had before. So, well, All right, well, we'll see where this all goes from here. In the meantime, uh, the Beltline Neighborhoods Association online, beltlineyyc.ca. Peter, thanks for making some time for us here today. Appreciate this. Thanks for having me, Rob. All right. Peter Oliver is president of the Beltline Neighborhoods Association. Uh, you can find them on Twitter as well, at YYC Beltline. Uh, so, look, you know, certainly they've raised some some concerns but at the same time, I mean, they also see the, the benefit of having this kind of a harm reduction approach. So to make sure that we've got good information shaping the decisions we're making. So the Alberta government report now has this, this really weird uh, error thrown into it. To say, aha, look, Avenue Magazine dropped the Beltline neighborhood and its, its rankings uh, of livability. That had nothing to do with this. So that, that shouldn't be in the report then. Unless you're just throwing stuff in there because you want to shape perceptions a certain way. And that seems much more political than scientific. As Avenue Magazine says, the change in ranking was unrelated to the Sheldon Schumer or to an overall decline in livability. So it's, it's a complete misrepresentation of what was in these Avenue Magazine neighborhood rankings. In fact, one of the issues, you know, just weirdly, one of the issues that, that dropped the belt line in the rankings was a perception that there were maybe too many restaurants in the neighborhood. So it has nothing at all to do with the issues this report's supposed to be looking at, yet they, they threw it in anyway. recent election campaign, the federal uh, liberals talked about how we need to make cell phone bills cheaper. And, and this is that kind of con- 
populist consumer politics. And and look, I mean, there, there's there's a point there. There's a reason why that resonates with Canadians. That typically Canadians have paid higher, on average, cell phone bills than consumers in other countries. But the question becomes, how do we get to an environment of lower prices? Is it something that the government can dictate? Or is it about fostering more competition? Well, the story this week, uh, the big three, Rogers, Bell, and Telus, will now have two years to cut their prices by 25% or face the consequences. Innovation Minister Navdeep Baines announced yesterday uh, the government will be changing from yearly to quarterly tracking of wireless prices with the goal of better tracking the price drops required for cell phone plans offering between two and six gigabytes of data. Said if the big three don't slash their prices, the government will take action with other regulatory tools to further increase competition and help reduce prices. Now, they're not looking at leveling fines, but they could look at restricting the big three's access to future spectrum auctions that they need in order to expand their networks, forcing them to let smaller providers piggyback on their networks. So it's the big three that uh, have this this expectation at this point, and um, they've pointed out how disappointing it is from their perspective that it's only limited to them and not to smaller carriers. Now, at the same time, right, I mean, we're really counting on these companies to invest a lot in making the switch to 5G. And are we creating the circumstances where maybe they are going to be less um, willing to do so or or even just have less at their disposal as a result of all of this? So what's the best way uh, to to get to a a place of more competition and lower wireless costs? Well, joining us uh, for some thoughts on all of this is someone who's worked in the industry and has uh, studied all of this very closely. Uh, Gail Campen is a uh, senior economist with the Montreal Economic Institute, IEDM.org. Uh, Gail, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Uh, thank you for having me, Rob. Happy to be here. Uh, so what are your thoughts on the approach the government is taking here? Well, uh, actually, we've been monitoring, you know, at the MEI, the, the evolution of the industry and and uh, the state of competition in, in in the industry for several years. And this idea that uh, price are higher than uh, in other countries, it's really a prejudice that has no, you know, justification. It's not justified. If you look at the facts, you know, for the past 12 years or so, you've been a constant decrease of prices in the industry. Uh, around four and five percent every year, and it's been accelerated. Uh, even the CRTC itself, you know, reported a decrease in prices of 28 percent between 2016 and 2018. So uh, competition is there, price reduction is happening, uh, and government shouldn't be involved, you know, into facilitating or enforcing competition. And competition is happening as long as you let, you know. Uh, players uh, operate in the market and finding ways to bring new value for money to the customers, you know, all the time. So it's happening. Prices are going down. Canadians are getting uh, better value for money every year. So, you know, the, the government claiming that he wants to enforce and push it down is a little preposterous because, uh, you know, competition is there to do the job already. Mm-hmm. So you think the government's misrepresenting uh, the, the situation as it is right now? Well, partly, I don't know if they do it, you know, purposefully or it's just a misunderstanding of the situation. But, you know, again, all the different reports on different sources are reporting that prices are going down. And even recently, it accelerated and went further down. So now, you know, when politicians make this kind of claim or this kind of promises during electoral campaigns, then, you know, they expose themselves and have to stick to it. So maybe they realized a little too late that this was already happening and, and still wanted to enforce the extra 25%. We don't know whether uh, the companies have it into them right now to do this extra cut for the following years. They've been doing it the past years, but maybe they already reached the bottom of it. You know, nobody knows what is the bottom price for this services in the Canadian context. What is for sure is that if they are forcing a price which is well below the market price or, you know, uh, forcing them to cut on the price faster than they would do by natural process, then they might, you know, block the all the spendings or they will postpone the, the delay, all the spendings that are coming now for the big 5G 
technological expenses that are required uh, of them. So it would be a problem. Well, and, and just by, I mean, ordering these companies, basically telling them that, listen, you've got two years, you, you must reduce your prices. I mean, it, it, it makes it sound like it's really easy, like these companies are deliberately keeping prices high and, and we're just going to tell them to, to stop doing that and, and everything's going to work out fine. But what, what are the unintended consequences of taking this kind of an approach? Again, when it comes to price control from the government, you know, it's easy to say and it's difficult to do. So either the price level they want to put is the same, you know, when you deal with uh, trying to put a maximum price in the rentals, you know, or whether you want to put a minimum wage, uh, the market decide otherwise. If they put the price too low than what the competition or the competitors are actually willing to go, uh, they will uh, limit the supply. They will stop servicing some regions or they will delay the deployment of the technology in some regions. And at the end of the day, it's the customers that are going to suffer suffer from it because generally speaking, you know, the the industry is pretty healthy in Canada. The customers, they enjoy really high-end quality of service and speed, you know, compared to the rest of the developed countries. But this could be, you know, different in the future if the current players were not, you know, willing or able to invest as much as necessary in the new wave of technology and therefore, you know, uh, take this, uh, you know, lose this position as a forerunner in terms of quality of service and technology uh, in the telecom industry. Right. If we're creating circumstances then that make these companies reluctant to invest in 5G or to invest as much in 5G, this could have longer-term consequences. Yes, because uh, some people say even that uh, the, the development of the 5G are going to be mainly for companies and, you know, business to business. This is where most of the consumption, the additional consumption is going to come, you know, from. Not so much on the customer side, the retail side. We are not going to experience such a big difference in terms of our own, you know, individual usage. But companies that are relying on 5G to develop business, create jobs and, you know, growth, they are going to be in pain if the deployment is delayed because of some, you know, governmental or regulatory decisions that will make it more difficult for the the current players to to operate. Mm -hmm. What about the question of competition, though? Because, um, you know, that's often cited as a a factor in in what we pay for wireless services. What kind of an approach should the government or should the CRTC, the regulator, take when it comes to the question of competition? Well, I mean, um, we published a couple of, uh, of uh, opinions and, and, and research paper on, on this specific topic, you know. Uh, our opinion is that CRTC actually is, is redundant and that is preventing the, the industry to grow and the industry would, would grow and be healthy under the regular, you know, competition uh, framework. But there's this specific regulation that the industry has to deal with that is different from any other uh, industry. So that's number one. And then uh, we tend to look at the, the government tends to look at competition uh, in a narrow way. For example, they will look at the situation of the wireless company and, and, and don't realize that, for example, the cable company uh, started to offer telephone services and uh, able to provide better packages with content. And therefore, you know, they are not they don't have to suffer the same constraints and the same regulation than the traditional wireless company or, or, you know, wire companies. And therefore, there is some, you know, discrepancies here, unfair, I would say, from the wireless point of view. But, you know, that's, that's what it is. They tend to look at it in a narrow way instead of looking at the global, you know, uh, solutions that are available for the customers, which is not only wireless, but it's also cable, but it's also, you know, all the Wi-Fi points that you see now everywhere, Customers are using the, the Wi-Fi at the office, in the coffee places, at home, and then, you know, the wireless uh, services have a cutthroat, you know, situation to deal with. So competition is there, and government tend to look at it with narrow, you know, uh, sight instead of looking at the big picture and the reality of the fact that newcomers can enter into the market and challenge the players at all times. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the question of innovation, right? We, I, we, we seem to overlook that, the, uh, the, the fact that we need to, to be encouraging innovation. And, and the kinds of approaches we're taking policy-wise right now might have the opposite effect. 
Uh, yeah, which innovation or which disposition you have in mind, uh, particularly? Well, certainly in terms of, of the innovation from, from the big three, and in terms of how they deliver service, the kinds of infrastructure they're, they're providing to provide that service. I mean, it's, it, it can be hard for government to look ahead five or ten years and, and really understand what we need or, or what's, what's going to be in demand, what, what these companies are going to be prepared to offer. Um, so in, in terms of that kind of innovation that we get from, from companies in Canada, how do we ensure that we're encouraging more of it? Actually, that's a good point that you make, but unfortunately, most of the time, the regulator is looking at the industry as it is, you know. Uh, we call it a static point of view. They look at the state of technology today, and they figure out, or they think they can figure out what kind of level of competition and who the players, they try to pick the winners. When actually the technology is in constant evolution, innovation are coming all the time, and if you try to freeze, let's say, the rule of the games according to certain, you know, technologies, then you prevent the, the emergence of uh, new approach and new ways to service the customer so it becomes a problem and uh, so in this sense the regulation when it's too narrow and kind of having um, a static view of what the technology should be and what the market should be prevents new approaches and new players and you know new ways to 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 bring satisfaction to the, the canadian customers that could be there if the regulation was not in in the way all right, much more on all of this, IEDM.org, website for the Montreal Economic Institute. Really appreciate your input on this. Thanks so much for joining us here. Thank you, Rob. All the best. Uh, Gail Campan is a uh, senior economist with the Montreal Economic Institute, uh, co-author of a couple of papers on this subject. Um, previously, had worked in this industry as well. So, yeah, like I say, I mean, it, it plays well politically. We're going to make your cell phone bill cheaper. Who wouldn't like that? But, I mean, at, at what cost and how are we going about it? And, and what is the reality of the landscape? Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.